This is The Guardian. With the really sad news today of the death of Benjamin Zephaniah, the British poet, musician and professor, we're revisiting an episode he made with us and George the Poet from 2020. A statement released earlier by his family said that Zephaniah died at the age of 65 in the early hours of Thursday morning after being diagnosed with a brain tumour eight weeks ago. You can read full coverage of the tributes to his life and his work over on theguardian.com. In the meantime, we hope you enjoy and listen back to one of my favourite episodes. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Wicked touch your bastard touch your hoe, I hate you so. Anytime that you say stop, be sure that I will go. If one class is inferior and one class is on top, then it is plain to see clearly that government must drop. That's Benjamin Zephaniah. It's 1980, he's in his early 20s with a scarf hanging around his neck in the raster colours of green, red and gold. His dreadlocks are hanging below his shoulders and he is performing passionately. This is 1989 at an anti-apartheid concert in Poland. Two years later, Benjamin travelled to six continents in 22 days to perform his increasingly popular poetry. That was the same year, 1991, that another artist was born in northwest London, who would come to be known as George the Poet. He would also start performing young. Last hard in theory, so we approach it more practical. And that is cool until we now go and act a fool. Like, I'm 20, fam, I love going back to school. I never got that was 2011, years. and this is 2020. George has a shaved head, moustache and goatee. He's dressed in a blue T-shirt, staring straight at the camera. But Grenfell, the man, helped to colonise the land that a lot of the emigrant residents migrated from. And even through this tragedy, the guy's name lives on. And now, through his award-winning podcast, he's talking about racial injustice, just like Benjamin did 40 years earlier. After G2 at The Guardian brought together black British artists to discuss their careers, inspirations and how culture and society has changed over the decades or not, we decided to bring together Benjamin Zephaniah and George the Poet for this podcast, two of Britain's most successful contemporary poets, who, despite being born a generation apart, seem to keep coming back to the same story of injustice. From The Guardian, I'm Anushka Astana. Today in Focus, Benjamin Zephaniah and George the Poet. I just want to warn you before we start that this episode does include some swearing and we do discuss examples of racial abuse. 
I'm also obviously a person of colour and I think there's a question that we often get and I got once with my mum not that long ago when we walked into a newsagent's together and the owner asked us, where are you from? And I just thought it was hilarious because at exactly the same moment, my mum said, Staley Bridge. And I said, India. <laughs> and I feel like there's something quite telling about the way that you answer that question. <laughs> and as I said, we get it quite a lot. So I'm going to try starting with that. Benjamin, where are you from? I'm from Birmingham. We talk like that in Birmingham. <laughs> hey, listen, it's funny because for me, it wasn't somebody asking me where I was from. I'm going to tell you, I was eight years old, walking one day on a road called Farm Street in a place called Hockley in Birmingham. A guy was riding a bicycle. He came behind me with a brick in his hand and slapped the back of my head with the brick and went, go home, you black bastard. And I went home with blood pouring from my head. And I went into my mother and I told her what he said. And I couldn't understand it because he said, go home. I said, mom, I was going home. You know, I thought I was going home, yeah? Uh. And you're black and I'm black. And I kept saying to my mom, what's a bastard? And my mom was so embarrassed, she wouldn't tell me what a bastard was. <laughs> that was the thing that she was obsessed about. You know, mm. That's a bad word, Benjamin, that's a bad word. <laughs> and that's the first time I realised that what this guy was calling home was supposed to be a different place from what I was seeing as home. Even at the young age of eight, I kind of had a political awareness thrust upon me, if you like. And that's one of the strange things about identity when you're growing up, that kind of idea of where do you belong? Do you fit in? How do other people see you? I mean, do you recognise some of that, George, when you were growing up in the 90s, quite a long time? No offence, Benjamin, <laughs> but quite a long time afterwards. <laughs> I'm from Harsden, basically, in northwest London. And the dynamic had shifted a lot by then. So I guess in Benjamin's generation, a lot of hard work had been done by the men and women in the area that I was growing up. So there was a, an immigrant Jamaican population throughout the 70s and 80s, as I understand it, that had to really fight, I guess, the incumbent, predominantly Irish population for their respect. And I mean physically fight, defend themselves against the kind of behaviour that Benjamin just described. So by the time I come along, it's a predominantly Jamaican community. My family is from Uganda. And the politics that I have to navigate is slight animosity from the Caribbean families towards Africans and African families. So that was interesting. So it kind of changed. The pecking order, the status had changed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When I was growing up, we were very influenced by Rastafarianism. You know, it was like the Back to Africa movement. My mother's from Jamaica. My father's from Barbados. It would have been very difficult for them to get married in either Jamaica or Barbados. They had to do it in England because of the little tribalism between the Jamaicans and the Bajans. And I remember when I was in East London and I was doing housing cooperatives, helping black people get housed. And there was a guy from Ghana that didn't want to work with a guy from Nigeria. And I was like, what? We are all one people. We are Rasta, you know what I mean? Yeah. So to me, it's a little bit, jarring when I hear that because we were all about unity when we said one love we meant one love that's one thing I always appreciated about the Rasta element of the community Rastafari was my first introduction to Pan-Africanism 
Yeah. That became my touch point. That became my lifeline. I wasn't obviously Rasta. I grew up in the church. But the language and the mentality and the worldview of the Rasta was very much... The women would refer to myself and my little brothers as prince. And the men would refer to the women as empress. And they had real knowledge about Africa and especially East Africa, where Uganda is, and would tell me things, empowering things about Ethiopia and their resistance to colonialism, stuff that we weren't getting told in school. So I honoured the Rasta tradition for bringing that pan-Africanism to the ends. We have a word, Nyabingi, that originates from Uganda. Do you know the story, George, by the way? Nyabingi? No, I don't. Oh. Tell us. Well, no, I'm no historian, but she was a real Ugandan freedom fighter. And she just led her people and she wouldn't compromise. And I think in the end, she was double-crossed and murdered. But they said she had magical powers. So when you hear the Rastas doing the drums Mm. and chanting... That's why we call it Nyabingi drumming. We name it after that Ugandan woman. Beautiful. Look, I've now got in Benjamin Zephaniah, a Caribbean man, telling me about an element of Ugandan history, which is probably not part of my reference because of tribalism. Yet we are increasingly in need of a global conversation about our history. We do not have a sufficient communications system. Let me ask you about history, because I'm pretty sure, Benjamin, you didn't learn that story about a powerful woman in Uganda in a state school in Birmingham. (laughs) And I suspect, George, that you weren't taught that much about black history in your schools as well. I mean, how much of a difference do you think that makes to our understanding as a society about race it goes back to your initial question it goes back to your initial question Anushka where are you from Benjamin just gave the example of identifying himself at eight years old as going home in Birmingham whereas someone else is throwing another concept of home out to him now as a young black person developing in a society in which there is a widely shared feeling that you are alien and this isn't your home, it's even more important for you to be grounded in some historical balance. And if you don't have that, you can imagine the imbalance that that creates across your lifetime. Of course. And to some extent, and maybe I put this to you, Benjamin, isn't it more than just not being taught things in school? I'm kind of quite ashamed to say, and I'm not sure if I ever actually have said, so I hope it doesn't make me sound like a bad person. But I felt that when I was growing up, I almost had infused into me I don't know where from certainly not from my parents this idea of British superiority and I was so pleased that I've been brought up in Britain and not Mm. India and when I went to India I must have had this superiority about me because I remember having a fight with my cousin when I was quite young where she was like you just are so arrogant about (laughs) Britain being better than the rest of the world and I'm just wondering is there something about society here that makes us feel that way Mm. as children Well, if you take in the history as it's taught here, that is highly possible because it is a history about the British being superior wherever they go. And it's interesting, this connects to people clapping for the health service now, which makes me feel slightly uncomfortable because not so long ago they were telling a lot of these people to go back where they come from and all this stuff. The health service is kind of underpinned by the people that come from abroad, especially my mother's generation. 
literally walking down a street in Jamaica, looking at a poster saying, come to the mother country. In Jamaica, my mother's education was more English than the English were getting here. Mm. In the schools, they had a picture of the Queen. The nursery rhymes were all the English nursery rhymes. She didn't know anything about Jamaican history, really, until her young Rasta son taught her, you know. Mm. So she comes to England and thinks that people on Brixton Market are going to be reciting Shakespeare. Mm. <laughs> and she had a real culture shock. She couldn't understand why the English families didn't all have a picture of the Queen, because they did in Jamaica. Benjamin, there's a pretty extraordinary story behind why you are now Zephaniah, isn't there? I wondered if you could tell me a bit about that and tell me about becoming a poet. My full name is Benjamin Obadiah Iqbal Zephaniah, which is technically Islamic, Christian and Jewish. (laughs) And I memorised the Bible in the same way that Muslims memorise the Quran. And I couldn't tell you most of the Torah too. I used to stand in front of people and they would mention a part of the Bible and they would say, what is Matthew one chapter five or whatever and I would just kind of do it off the top of my head I can't do it so much now I've kind of unlearned it in a sense but they said I was like a prophet and so the pastor of the church gave me the name Zephaniah (laughs) and I think some of my poetry came from there too I know it's a bit of a stereotype you know you get lots of black singers that say I started to sing in a choir at church I looked the other way I was looking at the preacher and I looked at the way they, they preached and how charismatic they were and how they used repetition and how they sometimes use rhyme. And it rubbed off on me. Mm. What about you, George? So similar to Benjamin, I was inspired by religious leaders from the Christian doctrine. I was inspired by Joshua, David, Jesus, of course, and outliers that just went against the grain and said what wasn't popular. Then after the fact, everyone looked back and said, no, 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 my man had a point. I liked people like that from a young age and I didn't, consciously think much of it outside of that my favorite athlete was Muhammad Ali whose career highs predated my time for me Ali took it because of his voice because of his thoughts because of his authority when he spoke his confidence his charisma I liked that and I liked the poetry in a lot of his delivery and I said Joe's gonna come out smoking and I ain't gonna be joking I'll be pecking and a poking Pouring water on his smoking. Then this might shock and amaze you, but I will destroy Joe Frazier. Fast forward to my teens now, and guys are rapping. Rap, in the form of grime for my generation, became more accessible than ever, largely because of technology. We now had access to, like, recording equipment. So we were now writing music and recording our own music. And even those of us who didn't have that equipment or didn't yet have access to that equipment, we had mobile phones. Mobile phones were now starting to develop file sharing technology, which allowed us to just share a lot of instrumentals that would allow me to, in my quiet moments, hone my craft. So that was my entry into performance. Over time, I got frustrated with what I felt like was the circular narrative of rap music. Things that were real struggles like what Benjamin described, the kind of adversity, the fierceness that our forebearers had to suffer in the early years of the what we now know as Black Britain. That wasn't part of our experience. Yet, for some reason, a militancy had developed across the community. A form of masculinity had developed across the community and a gangsterism had developed. 
I didn't like the gangsterism. I felt like it was becoming self-destructive and gratuitous. It was not about community self-defense against the police. So because of that reason, I fell out of love with rap. Then interestingly, I got to university and for the first time in my life, I was surrounded by white people. I understood at that point that grime music didn't have the advantage of Zephaniah's dub poetry, where you're speaking slowly and deliberately and politically. So Zephaniah came up in the ilk of like the John Cooper clock. Mm. You're like a dose of scabies. I've got you under my skin. You make life a fairy tale. Grim, a sumo wrestler's armpits. I've nothing on your shoes. Show me any two half-wits and they're twice as smart as you. And in that time, there was a common blanket of working-class consciousness from what I can infer. You were able to break bread with some of the white boys and girls who were sharing your perspective. But... By the time grime came along, my black community was so far removed from the white working class experience and we had language and linguistic techniques that were not accessible to everyone. So when I got to Cambridge, I didn't want to not be understood, but I wanted the verse and the tradition that I was from to be respected. That's why I transitioned to performance poetry. Are there any lines from your work that reflect that kind of process that you were going through? Yeah, man, so so much. So like, I remember the first poem that I released was originally written as a grime rap. Now, grime is 140 beats per minute. So the tempo that you perform this at is fast. But I first had the idea to perform it without music and make it sound conversational. It was full of vitriol. I remember I was like, basically, when I blow up, when I blow, you will never see my face again. I hate the ends. I feel like the owner of Gucci working in H&M. I can't say that I'm one of them patient men. I'm trying to be ghosting the fastest, like Nicolas Cage and most of the artists. Home's where the heart is, but I wear my heart on my sleeve. Everyone knows where my yard is. Can't sound hard to believe. Everyone knows I'm a paris. I'll only come back to go to the barbers because I don't want to see these youths like most of our fathers. I was that angry. And Benjamin, there was anger for you at the beginning of your career as well, wasn't there? When you were first being published 40 years ago in the early 80s, you wrote, this policeman keeps on kicking me to death. Yeah. What was going on to make you want to write that? Well, first of all, I just want to say that I too listened to Muhammad Ali. He was a hero. My father was, um, I don't know what he's like as a man, but he was, to me, he wasn't a very good father. But one thing I do remember was he would sit down with me and watch Muhammad Ali fight. Mm. And I'll never forget at the end of a fight, Muhammad Ali, he'd come out of the ring and there's somebody lying there knocked out and he would read a poem and I'd go, what? (laughs) You know, (laughs) it's sometimes hard, I find, for people to understand how brutal the police were to us back in the day. I mean, people are seeing it now. The great thing about this generation is, you know, as soon as you get stopped by the police, they pull their phones out. We didn't have that. I got stopped by the police in Birmingham walking, they got out the car, they beat me up in the shop doorway, jumped in the car and drove off. Marked car, police in uniform, knowing that the idea of them getting in trouble for this is very unlikely. I had so many, I, I, I just, I, I'm not going to go and list them all now. So when I wrote This Policeman Keeps On Kicking Me To Death, it was actually after an experience of being in a police station in Birmingham where I thought I was going to die. You know, and the strange thing is that my cousin, Mikey Powell, probably died in the same police station. That's another thing. 
So I was in this police station and I'm so close to death and I'm thinking I'm alone here. And I remember just like George Floyd, just thinking about my mother and thinking that who's going to tell her, who's going to break the bad news? Will she ever know? Will they just throw me in a river? I mean, all these things going through my head and I was very calm. I couldn't fight. And I was a good fighter and I couldn't fight these people. And so when I survived that experience, I wrote this poem, This Policeman Keeps on Kicking Me to Death. That poem's not a great poem, you know. It's just me being angry and just ranting. <laughs> Can you give us a little bit of it? Well, it used to go, In the distant of the night, you see them moving around, investigating and crime-making within any tone. Creeping persons with no heart, them control who them please, them only like physio when you're on your bending knees. Some of us will fight them, we fight them. Some of us fight back. Infarmers will sleep with you, then stab you in the back. This regime is racist, me know this regime is bent. This regime is like a worthless penny that's unspent. Well, this policeman keeps on kicking me and pulling out my locks. He keeps on feeding me unlimited book locks. This policeman is a coward. He gets me from behind. Well, him can jail my body, but him cannot jail my mind. Like a bat from hell, he come at night to work his evil plan. Although he goes to church on Sunday, he's a sinner man. Like a thief in his dark, he takes me to the place where him just left. And when him get me in there, him is kicking me to death. This policeman, this policeman, this policeman keeps on kicking me to death. I tell you, this policeman, well, this policeman, well, this policeman keeps on kicking me to death. And it goes on, I won't do any more. <laughs> That's so amazing. But it's angry. It's tense. And what do you feel like when you hear Benjamin tell you about that time before you were born? I get goosebumps and I get frustrated. I get mad. Benjamin, you had that poem published in 1980 and it would be nice to think that things improved dramatically in the decades after that and that George as a black boy in the 90s would be facing very different circumstances and yet in 2003, more than two decades on from your early work, your cousin, Mikey Powell, was killed in police custody. Yes. Tell me what happened to him. Well, what happened with Mikey was that he used to have these kind of episodes where he would have kind of mental stress, if you like. And most of the time he did slightly funny, crazy things, you know. But one day he climbed on the roof. And my auntie thought this is very dangerous and she called the police. And it was in the middle of the day. And the police came around and it was a policewoman and she talked him down. And she actually said to him, you know, hey, you look good, you look fit. And he said, yeah, you look cool too. And she said, well, why don't you come down, me and you can have a drink together. And it was just very lighthearted. He came down, they had a cup of tea and some biscuits together. And that was it. And then the next episode happened to be in the middle of the night. And um, my auntie thought if she called the police, the good British police would send the same lady around because they talk about community policing. They understand Mikey and she would get the help she needed. She was on her own. She called the police and when the police arrived, one of the first things they did was that they run him over with the van. They were driving. They said because they couldn't see his hands. His hands looked like he was going in for his belt or it could have been a gun. Anyway, within an hour, Mikey was dead. And that's the long and short of it. When you saw what happened to George Floyd, were you thinking of Mikey? It just came straight back. When you read the inquest results, it's the same thing, asphyxiation. The only difference is we couldn't identify the officer. That's why they got away with it. So 
gangs of skinheads walking around the streets in big groups in almost every city and almost every night does not happen anymore. But the racism that comes from the institution is as worse as it's ever been. And, you know, when a police officer is beating up a black person, putting her or his foot in his neck or whatever, a lot of the time they have a feeling of racial superiority and they got it from their education. And so this is where a lot of the struggle has to be directed now. Those white gangs that used to attack us on the streets, they've got suits and ties and they're in positions of power and that's where they manifest their racism now. Coming up, rejecting the system, why both Benjamin and George said no to the British honour system a generation apart. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Today in Focus is supported by BetterHelp. Here's a question. If you had an extra hour in your day... What would you do with it? Watch TV? Read a book? Meet up with a friend? Maybe a little nap? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But for what? Perhaps to best answer that, you need to work out what's truly important to you, then make that a priority. Therapy can help you work out what's most important to you. It isn't just for those who've unfortunately experienced trauma in their lives. Therapy can be helpful for learning positive coping skills and for setting boundaries. It can empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash todayinfocus today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash todayinfocus. Benjamin, in 2003, actually the same year you lost Mikey, you famously rejected an OBE, which would have made you officially an officer of the Order of the British Empire. And George, you made the same decision about an MBE 16 years later. I'm actually going to start with you, George. Why did you reject that honour? I grew up knowing that Benjamin had rejected his honour and I hadn't given it that much thought. I understood that he's a principled man. I hadn't had as much time to form my opinion on empire. Now, when I was first asked, 
I was a big man at this time. I was 28 years old. My knee-jerk reaction was, yes, I'm not Benjamin Zephaniah. I think this could work. I think I'm okay with that honour. But it didn't take long for that logic to unravel because really the memory of my grandfather and my understanding of the political challenges of Ugandan society, that flooded back to me because I was being asked if I was going to accept an MBE. And I thought, I know better. Not to say I know better than other people, other black people who have accepted, but I know myself well enough to know that the word empire is a sticking point. And it has to be a sticking point for me because I'm a poet. Words matter. Words matter more to me than they do to the average profession. So as a matter of principle, I just became a predictable black poet. And I was like, I'm sorry, I can't do that. I think I read somewhere that you hated the idea of being asked whether this was something to do with whether you love the country because you really love this country. Is that what people asked you? I found it frustrating that my feelings around Britain and my love for this country were being misrepresented because of, again, gaps in the historical record. Benjamin, if we rewind and go back to your decision, you were a huge success and they wanted to recognise you. Was your reason for not accepting similar? Well, you see, I don't think I've been a huge success. If I was a huge success, we wouldn't have Black Lives Matter in Britain now. We wouldn't have had a couple of wars. Because we were all about shaking up and waking up the people. And then that would go on to influence the government. And so I consider us kind of, I'm not going to say failure, but we weren't successful at that. Now, I listened to why George said he didn't take it. And I agree with the word empire. But I actually would go further, you see. Because one of the questions that people say is, would you take it if the word empire was changed? And my answer to that is also absolutely not. Why? Because it comes from the monarchy and because it comes from the government. I don't need to be patted on the back by them. If you could have a system where people, your own peers, could honour you, that's great. Can I ask you something about the Black Lives Matter movement right now? For many years, this has been a conversation that has been driven by people of colour. It's been driven by you, Benjamin. It's been driven by people like George. It's been driven by Gary Young and Afua Hirsch, by Rennie Edo Lodge. How important is it that it's not just people of colour who are fighting racism? How important is it that white people are part of this conversation and that perhaps they're tackling some of the reasons in which they, we, the whole society is a big part of the problem? I think this is really, really important. It can't be stressed enough, you know. And it's not just white people, it's that so many young white people who just refuse to follow the narrative of their own parents sometimes. And they are much more enlightened. They have the internet. They can see the truth. And this is really, really important. People understand that it's about all of us. The history of black people is the history of all of us. It's interesting. I was growing up fascinated with black history. And then I got fascinated with white history, 
Because that is so much of a lie too. And now I'm interested in, you know, the history of the working class people of Britain. There were women in this country who refused to have sex with their husbands because they were importing sugar or they were making the shackles for the slaves in the Caribbean and things like that. So it's not all bad, but we've got to be really honest about it. When we talk about black history and African history, they're two slightly separate things. But it's not all great. You know, there's not all these great kings and queens that were wonderful. Some of them were very brutal. But we just have to be honest about it. We just want honesty. And I think that is what a lot of younger white people are saying to their older generation. Black people are not angels, they're not perfect, but we want the truth. George, we've repeatedly come to questions about history. And on a positive note, could this movement make some real progress in that area? You know, it's clearly about changing the conversation about which historical figures we celebrate and about the curriculum. Most definitely. That's a tangible outcome to start thinking more proactively about the story we tell ourselves. I trust the incoming generation with the continuation of correcting the historical record. Benjamin, thank you for your contribution to this struggle. I was like eight years old when I came across your book, Gangster Rap. And that in itself was a turning point for me to know that we can tell our story in our language with our authority. That's been foundational to my career and anything that you would describe as my success. So thank you, seriously. Well, you know, there's no Rasta saying, each one teach one. We all learn from each other. I just want to say very quickly that I remember a time when after reggae was strong, a bit after that, we were complaining, saying that the youth got no consciousness now. Where's it all gone? And then your generation came along and kind of picked it up again. And now you're referring to another generation. I always say, I like to always end these conversations by saying, it cannot be proved scientifically. There are no university studies to back this up. But I just believe in the victory of good over evil. And that's why we're still here. That's why we still struggle. Mm. You know, I could go and live in Jamaica now or something like that. But I am dedicated to the struggle here. And so when I see that another generation is inspired and that generation in turn inspires another generation, it tells me that there is hope. And as Maya Angelou would say, I'm paraphrasing now, but still we rise. Perfect. That was Benjamin Zephaniah and George the Poet. I would definitely encourage you to look up all their brilliant work. Do read Benjamin's autobiography, The Life and Rhymes of Benjamin Zephaniah. And if you haven't listened to Have You Heard George's podcast, then you are seriously missing out. Do download it. A big thanks to my colleague, Lanry Beckery, for all his help on this episode. I urge you to look up G2's Culture Special, featuring black British artists from different disciplines discussing their careers and race. A huge thanks to Benjamin Zephaniah and George the Poet, who were brought together by our Today in Focus producer, Courtney Youssef, who made this episode. Sound design was by Axel Cucutier. The executive producers are Nicole Jackson and Phil Maynard. We'll be back tomorrow.
Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.